All right, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. We'll also be in the book of John, and I'll be referencing Ephesians chapter 1 as well, if you want to save those passages. Revelation 2, we'll be visiting the book of John as well as Ephesians chapter 1. But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, um, John told us what Revelation would include. He says that he bear record of the word of God, so it would include God's message to us about the end times. He bear record of the testimony of Jesus, so it would also include, include Jesus' words for his people. And then thirdly, he said, of all the things that he, John, saw, so it would include John's visions. But then we got even more specific in John chapter 1 verse, I mean, Revelation 1 chapter 19, where Jesus now instructs John, gives him the outline for the book of Revelation. He says, write the things which you have seen, that's section one, write the things which are now going on, section two, and then the things which shall be hereafter, section three. So chapter one was section one, the vision that John had already seen. We studied that last week or last couple weeks. And chapter two began section two, the things that are presently going on in these seven churches that Jesus has something to say to. And so we started that section last week by looking at Jesus's message uh, to the church at Ephesus, and today we're going to look at the Jesus's message to the church at Smyrna. Now, f- before we dive into that, Every, le- every message that Jesus gives to each of these churches, it has a structure. He will, Jesus will start off by reminding them of an aspect of his character, referencing the vision that John saw. Last week we saw that Jesus reminded the church at Ephesus that he's the one that holds the, the church in his right hand, you know, safely in his right hand. Um, then after he reminds them of his character, he commends them for what they're doing right. If they are, there's two churches that weren't doing anything right. And then he will correct them for what they're doing wrong. If anything, there's two churches that weren't doing anything wrong. And for those churches, he'll explain how to get back on track. And then finally, Jesus will close with an exhortation moving forward and a promise for those who are faithful to do so. So that's kind of how every one of these messages works. So in chapter 2, we're going to start off uh, in verse 8 with this description of Jesus. And under the angel of the church in Smyrna, the Lord says this, these things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, remember the word angel there just means messenger, and so uh, it's very likely that he's referring to a leadership team or the lead pastor there or the teaching pastor, whatever it might be, uh, the person responsible who would share this message uh, with the church there. And so he says, to this messenger of the church in Smyrna, write these things. Now, if we could put the map up there of uh, Western Asia real quick, you can see where Smyrna is. Smyrna is the middle circle all the way on your left, my right. Um, as you can see, it's right there by the coastline, by the ocean, and uh, located on the western coast of the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia. It had good harbor facilities, surrounded by really rich farmland. So the people who lived there were pretty well-to-do, um, and a lot of folks lived there. And because the city of Smyrna originally was a part of the kingdom of Pergamos, um, which was a Greek uh, kingdom, uh, because the city gave its loyalty to Rome at a very early stage when Rome was expanding, they broke from the kingdom of Pergamos and they gave their loyalty to Rome. Rome often rewarded Smyrna with things. And, and as such, 
Smyrna became the headquarters. They were rewarded with being the headquarters for the imperial cult of emperor worship in that region. So if you were going to go worship the emperor, his temple was there. That's where you would go to do it. Now, depending upon who was the emperor, that was a big deal or it wasn't. Uh, But Emperor Domitian, who's the emperor during the time that Revelation is written, we have already talked about how he revived that cult uh, of emperor worship. Uh, uh, That's why John's in exile, because the emperor Domitian was demanding that everyone worship him. So because of that, life right now for the Christians in Smyrna was extremely difficult. It was horrible. Because if they refused to worship the image of the emperor, the statue of the emperor, and say Caesar or Kaiser is Lord, um, then they would, they would be stripped of all their possessions. So what you would be do is, it, to determine if you were a loyal citizen, you'd be brought to this temple, and you would be required to offer a, a pinch of incense to his statue and say Caesar is Lord. I always chuckle when people tell me and say, the Bible never says Jesus is God. You're reading that in your own cultural context. The Bible wasn't written in the the 21st century, all right? The phrase, Caesar is Lord, is a statement of deity. That's why Christians, they would say Jesus is Lord. They would say Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. By saying that, they're not just going, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord forever. They, They weren't singing that song. They were... Wow, you guys don't remember that song? Oh, wow, okay. You need to go back to the 80s. Best music time ever. But they were saying it because they were, it was a statement of Christ's deity, that he is the Lord. Caesar's not God. He's not the, the, this deity. Jesus is the king. He's the, the creator. He's the, uh, uh, God Almighty. He's the master. He is Lord. And so... When the Christians would refuse to do that, they would be stripped of their possessions and they'd be ostracized in the city. So these Smyrna Christians are really struggling. Now, John, he personally discipled a young man uh, by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp later became Smyrna's uh, first lead pastor. Uh, So he's likely here during this time. Uh, He did not go through this, he did not suffer death from this persecution But he's most famous for what he said at a future persecution in Smyrna. Uh, When he was at his trial and they ordered him to deny Christ or face death, he said this. He said, 86 years have I served him and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? He was shortly after burned at the stake. Now, that's what these Smyrna Christians faced on a regular basis. You know, they weren't facing death just yet, but it was coming soon. And so Jesus reminds them of something important before he addresses their difficult situation, before he addresses the church. He says, these things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. First and the last. It was important for these Christians to know that Jesus was the eternal one, that he is the eternal one, and that he would have the last word. Death would not have the last word. He would have the last word. He had the first word, and he'll have the last word. Do you believe that Jesus gets the last word? Amen, he does. Death isn't the last word, you know? That's what a lot of people think, you know? That's it, death's the end. No, 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 death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does, and he reminds them of that. He also reminds them that he was the one which... Was, alive, was dead and is alive, or literally, which became dead and lived again. He said, I became dead, but I lived again. Now think about that for a minute. When people pass away in our culture, 
Even unbelievers say things like, oh, they're smiling down on us. Oh, they're, they're in a better place. Um, many people in our culture believe that those who become dead live again in a spiritual sense, you know? But not like what Jesus is talking about here. Not where their bodies actually come up out of the grave and you can see and touch them again here on earth. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I became dead and I lived again. It's not like, oh, his memory went on and it lives with us, you know, his spirit's in our midst. That's that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I became dead. My body was in a grave and I came up out of that thing where people could see and touch and hear and talk with me again. Now that, (laughs) that's something radically different. Now, how could Jesus do something like that? I mean, death is death, right? Well, the Bible says that he has life in and of himself. Look at John chapter 10 with me. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus has life in and of himself. In John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. I can't say that about myself. I am alive, but I don't have life in and of myself. I was made alive. I was created. But Jesus was never created. He always has been. He has life in and of himself. And so in explaining this, Jesus says, referring to how he's the good shepherd and he, he you know, lays his life down for the sheep. He says, therefore, does my father love me in verse 17, John 10, 17, because I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. That's interesting. Like I might, I might say, well, I'm going to lay down my life for someone. You know, I'm going I'm to take a bullet for someone. Or I'm going I'm to put myself on the front lines. I could say that, but I can't say, well, that was great. I'm back in it again, you know? that's it, you know? I don't have the ability to bring myself up out of the grave. But Jesus does. Look, he says in verse 18, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my father. Jesus, when he came to the earth, he laid down so many of his privileges of deity, the Bible says. You know, he emptied himself of so many things. But he had received this from his father that he, had, he did not have to lay this down, that he was to retain the ability to, to lay down his life and to take it back up again. And so Jesus did. He, he's the one that brought himself out of the grave because he has life in and of himself. Now, if Jesus has life in and of himself and he can bring himself out of the grave, well, that means he can raise our mortal bodies out of the grave to live again too. That's not hard for him. It's not difficult. It's not even something he has to strive or strain to accomplish. And that concept that he would bring our mortal bodies out of the grave again is something that Jesus promised he would do before he even died. And the guarantee of that promise is his resurrection. Look at John 14, 19. In John 14, 19, we read in our scripture reading, Jesus says, a little while I am going to go where no one will see me anymore. You know, I'm going to go into the grave. But you're going to see me. You see me. And because I live, because I'm going to rise from the dead, you shall live also. You will rise from the dead too. 
how encouraging for these beaten down believers in Smyrna, you know, who are struggling and going through persecution for, for Jesus to tell them and say, I became dead, but I lived again. And because I lived again, you will live again too. Whatever happens here, you will live again. How encouraging for us when life or the world or our enemy beats us down, amen? We're going to live again, even if they were to take our life here. Well, Jesus now in verse 9, he moves on to his commendation. He says, this is what I see that's good. He says, I know your works and your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. He says, I see everything you're doing. I know all your works. And I know that you keep doing it despite your awful circumstances. What awful circumstances? Well, these Christians face two great challenges. One, your tribulation, and two, poverty. The word tribulation here means trouble involving suffering. It was the same word that John used in Revelation 1.9 to describe the Roman persecution under Domitian. So he says, listen, I know you guys are going through it just like I've gone through it. You know, uh, you know he talks about, uh, not John, I'm sorry, Jesus says, you know, I know you guys are going through it just like John was. You know, he's, he's been a part of the trouble. The trouble was referring to the persecution of Domitian. I know you guys are experiencing the very same thing, uh, persecution. But also, he says, I've seen your poverty, that you continue serving despite your poverty. The word here means destitution. It's not just that they were poor. It means a state of not having enough possessions to meet your needs. Being the seat of emperor worship in the region, most, if not all, of these believers in Smyrna had lost everything. Their possessions had been stripped, their, their homes, everything. And yet, Jesus closes his statement by saying, but you are rich. You're rich. You have everything you need to move forward. You've lost everything you have, but you still have everything you need to move forward. How is that possible? The word rich means to have an abundance. How do you have an abundance when you don't even have what you need to meet your needs? Look at Ephesians 1 with me. Ephesians 1. Paul the Apostle writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is so awesome. That's what he's saying there. God be praised. God is awesome. Why? Because he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We have all these spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing you can imagine, it is now ours in Christ. We are overflowing in spiritual blessings in Christ. And what are they? Verse four, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about this for a minute. I mean, how many of you were ever, you know, on the, the recess field or whatever, you know, in elementary school and everybody's picking teams and you got picked, you know, toward the end? You know, you see the look on people's faces, whoever the captains are, they're looking over and they're going... I guess we take Bob, you know. I mean, that's not a great feeling, you know. Yeah, you got picked, but, you know, it's not the excited idea of getting picked. Like, yay, you know. You're know, like, yeah, I'll come on over. I'll try not to mess things up too bad. That's not what we mean when the Lord picked us. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. He, he says, I am happy to pick you. I have a purpose for you. I have a finish line, uh, you know, a tape you're going to break, you know. I have a victory I'm calling you to. He picked you. I wouldn't have picked me. Not if I was trying to set up a deal. Let's see, you know, we've got to reach the world for, for Christ, you know, who do we pick, you know. He picked you, picked me. He loves us. You don't ever have to walk around wondering if you're loved or walk around wondering if, you know, what other people think or whatever. It doesn't matter, you know. They, these folks are being slandered and ostracized. doesn't matter. Jesus picked you to be holy without blame before him, to become something different, to not stay who you are, to, to be changed, to be revolutionized, you know, to win. And in love, he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In his love, he, he didn't just say, you know, the phrase, you know, in love in, in verse four is, is incorrectly at the end of verse four. It should be at the start of verse five because it, belong, it modifies having predestinated. What does it mean that in love he predestinated us? Because, you know, even though he says, well, I picked you, you and I are gonna go, why? 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 I, I'm not gonna finish. I'm not gonna be holy and blameless. Like, do you, you, don't, do you know who I am, you know? It's like the opposite, like, like when a celebrity gets pulled over and then they say, do you know who I am? It's the exact opposite for us. We're going, do you know who I am? And it's like Peter, you know, says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You shouldn't even be on this boat with me. This is a sinking ship, Lord. The Lord says, no, no, no. In his love, he said, I want you to know that the end is sure. Your destination is sure. You've already got a mailbox with your name in it in heaven. It's a good-looking one. It's not a shoddy, beat-up one, you know, for a shack out in the outskirts of the heavenly city, you know. I have made sure that you're going to finish, that you're going to be conformed to the image of my son. You know, under Roman law, you could disown your birth children, but you could never disown an adopted child. Never. Never. Because you didn't pick your, your birth kids, but you picked the adopted child. The Lord says that that's what we've been destined to. We're his kids. doesn't matter who else forsakes us, who else turns against us. doesn't matter what the government thinks about us. doesn't matter what society thinks about us. We're children of the king. To the praise of the glory of his grace, we're in it, he has made us accepted in the beloved. What does it matter if no one else accepts us, right? Or our ways or how we look at things? You know, we want to do what God says? We don't like that. Okay. He likes me. Seriously. Like I hear Christians sometimes, they'll say things like, well, you know, Jesus told me I have to love you. I don't have to like you. I want to revisit that. Because Jesus likes you. He does. He has made, God has made us accepted in Christ, you know? The Bible says he's going to present us faultless before his throne with great joy. 
great joy, not shame, not embarrassment, not like, well, you know, here's Will, we have to let him in because, you know, the whole for God so love the world thing, you know, he did it, so you got to let him in. No, with great joy, this is my son. He's not ashamed to call his brethren, the book of Hebrews says. Isn't that awesome? We have that. In whom, verse 7, we also have redemption through his blood. We've been purchased. This world doesn't own us anymore. Do what they want. We have the forgiveness of sins, and it says it's according to the riches of his grace. Aren't you glad it's not according to the riches of your spouse or your kid, or the, of your spouse's grace or of your, your kid's grace, your parent's grace, your boss's grace, your employee's grace? Aren't you glad it's according to the riches of his grace because his grace is endless, man. We have been washed, cleansed, forgiven, on that basis, stand clean, wherein he has abounded towards us in all wisdom and all prudence. He has overflowed towards us with everything we need. You don't know what to do? Seek the Lord. I mean, I'm not saying it works like a, you know, you just open the book and you're like, oh, there's my answer, you know. We seek the Lord and he leads and directs our lives, right? But these phrases, riches, abounding, blessing, I mean, these are not phrases that we would associate with persecution and poverty, right? But that's why Jesus reminds them, yeah, they've taken everything from you, but you're still rich. You still have everything and more than you need to keep moving forward. That's why Paul could say what he did in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we get to verse 31, that big famous section, you know, where he says, what shall we say to all these things? If God be for us, who can be against us, right? We, what, is, what happens before, though, that he can say, what shall we say, well, that he says, what shall we say to all these things? Well, it's salvation. We who are dead in sins, trespasses and sins, where it says the wages of sin is death, it says that he has justified us. He's declared us righteous. He's washed our sins away. He's given us access into the throne room of God. But not only that, he has promised he's sanctifying us. He's making us more like Christ, freeing us from not just the guilt of sin, but the power of sin. And then in the middle of chapter eight, he closes with that idea that part of our salvation is also that he will someday free us from the presence of sin. We're gonna be glorified. We're joint heirs with Christ and we groan earnestly for that day, but it's coming. All that is ours in Christ. And what Jesus starts, he finishes. So in light of that, he says, what shall we say then to all these things? Romans 8, 31. If God be for us, who could be against us? Who cares what the government wants to do to us? Who cares what they say? Who cares what society wants to do to us, right? Jesus is on our side. That's what these Smyrna Christians needed to hear. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up, uh, uh, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If when we were his enemies, that Jesus, the Father didn't hold back his own son to die for us, if that's what he was willing to pay, sacrifice to bring us to him, how shall he not freely give us all things that we need, right? Smyrna, you don't need to sweat this. Yeah, it's rough, I get it. Yeah, everything's been taken from you, but this is what you have. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? But they're finding us guilty. They're saying we're, we're, we're criminals, okay, who cares? It's God who has justified you already. He's already declared you not guilty. Let them do what they want. And who is he that condemns? 
They're threatening us to condemn us to death, to take everything we have. Okay? Well, it's Christ that died. He rather that has risen again, who's even at the right hand of God and he's making intercession for you. It doesn't matter what verdict they render against you. It doesn't matter what penalty they pour out upon you. Jesus, they did it all to him. And guess what? He lived again. So what's the worst thing they can do to you? Kill you. But then, you're with the Lord. I recognize I'm not looking forward to any type of, like, martyrdom or anything. That's not my point. But that's not the end. There is something waiting on the other side that far exceeds anything they could do to you and me. And he's also praying for us in the midst of our difficult situations. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, can they ever take away God's love for us, Jesus' love for us? The answer is no. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or even sword. No. He, Paul says, as it's written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We're accounted like sheep to the slaughter. That's how they, they might view us as not valuable or important, but Jesus loves us. Nay, in all these things, whatever they might do to us because of the fact it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what their verdict they render. Doesn't matter what they might, penalty they might throw upon us. Because in all these things, because of God's love, God's justification, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, nor powers, that word there means the governments, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have everything we need to move forward, to push forward. He says, you are rich. Now, God's love, God's fellowship, God's blessings, God's promise to be with him forever, no one can take that from us. And guys, that's why the scripture says we look for a city that's not of this world. This, nothing in this world is going to last. Nothing, you know? And it's certainly not promised to me. But God's abundance is. It's always promised to me. And you say, well, that sounds hard. <laughs> I think it probably sounds a bit harder to us here in this group today um, because we're used to a certain standard of living. We're used to a certain standing in society. But that doesn't change the call of the Christian life to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. That is the Christian life. That's part of our journey with Jesus. And the good part is, is he allows the comforts of this life to be stripped away from me. It gives me the opportunity to find the joy and peace that can never be taken from me. Amen? Now, you can look at these difficulties and you can grow bitter, believing God or the world owes you something better, or you can fall into the everlasting arms that will never drop you, just like Polycarp did. You say, well, but didn't Jesus let him die at the stake, burned to death? He did. But when he took his last breath here, Jesus was right there waiting to receive him into heaven. I don't think Polycarp was complaining. You see, but where's the fairness and justice of that? Well, the Lord, he addresses that next. Look at the end of verse 9. 
He says, I know what you're going through, but I also know this. Know, I see all the other people's works too. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but they're not, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. And we usually associate blasphemy with like slander towards God or taking God's name in vain, and it does mean that. But here, the word blasphemy just means slander or defamation. So this time it's towards the Christians, uh, not the Lord. He says, I know the slander and the defamation that's brought against you by those who say they are Jews, but they're not. Now, the phrase Israel, it means ruled or governed by God. And so the idea here is they say that I, I rule them, that I'm in charge of their lives, but the truth is that's not the case. They're not part of my congregation. They're part of Satan's congregation. Um, Before we get into their specific situation, I do think it's important for me to bring up that you cannot, I cannot live in hatred or murder and, and follow Almighty God. They're not compatible, okay? Hatred towards any individual or towards any group of people is not compatible with following the Lord under any circumstances. Now, unfortunately, the greatest complaints against early Christians came from the Jewish population. Polycarp was arrested because a Jewish mob went into the arena, the local Colosseum, and demanded, they had a riot, and they demanded that the Roman proconsul arrest him. And he was eventually arrested, brought to trial, and then put to death. The folks that were in that mob were regular attendees at the local synagogue. They considered themselves to be godly people. They justified the death and hatred of Christians because, well, they're wrong. Jesus is wrong, and these people who follow him are wrong. Guys, we can disagree with someone, with people, without hating or demonizing them. We can do that. And the moment I tolerate hatred of an individual or a people group in my heart, I have left the truth, even if the reason for my hatred is the truth. I've left the truth, and I'm not right with the Lord. So Jesus says, I know, I see what's going on, and I saw, right, I see right through the charade where they claim to be spiritual, but they hate you, and they've defamed you. I see right through it. And he let the believers know they're not alone. Listen, if you've been wronged or persecuted because of your faith, Jesus sees it. He knows. And more than anyone, he understands your pain. So Instead of getting angry and retaliating or responding back, talk to the Lord about it. Bring all that hurt to him so he can help you to respond like he did. You know, these were incredibly great challenges for these believers despite all these truths. So Jesus exhorts them to stay faithful to the end because it's going to get worse. Look at verse 10. This is now his exhortation. He commends them for how good a job they've done, but they need to keep moving forward. So this is his exhortation in verse 10. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. For behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation 10 days. Don't be afraid when worse things start to happen and worse things are coming, he says. You know, worse things, fear none. Worse things than poverty and defamation were about to hit these Christians. You know, fear is an interesting emotion. I used to tell my kids all the time when they're little because kids become fearful, right? A lot. You know, it's dark. You know, their feet don't reach the floor. So, of course, there's monsters on the floor, right? In the back seat of the car. You know about that, right? You know? And so, you know, you, they would get scared at times, you know, and I would explain to them. I'd say, listen, I, I get it. It's a natural reaction to feel fear. 
God designed us with that fight or flight mechanic. So like when you see, you know, the careening, you know, object coming towards you, that your fight or flight aspect takes over. That's not evil and that's not sinful, okay? Nothing wrong with that. You know, at that point in time, that's when your body decides, you know, either that you're Superman and you're going to stop the object coming towards you or that's going to kill me and you get out of the way, you run, you know? The problem comes is what do we do after that? After that mechanism that God has given to us to respond to those stressful situations, now what do we do? Do we dwell on those fears? You know, do we let that dominate us? That's when it becomes sinful. And so when I tell my kids, I said, it's okay to feel afraid. You just, it's not okay to stay afraid, to let fear overwhelm you. Because fear, it does interesting things to our emotions, you know, to our minds. It gets us thinking things that we wouldn't normally think. And if we dwell on those thoughts, we can take actions that we wouldn't normally take. So Jesus says, listen, worse things are coming, but don't let fear govern your decision-making uh, process when they do. Fear none of those things that you're going to suffer. Behold, which means pay attention, you know. Pay attention, guys. Listen up, because this is so important. He says, next, after he says, behold, he says, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. He doesn't say the Romans. He doesn't say the Jews. He says, the devil is the one who's doing this. He is the source of this. So don't respond to the people. Respond to the right enemy. It's not the Jews who are slandering you. It's not the Romans who've taken everything from you. The person you need to recognize that's doing this is the enemy of your souls who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us something very interesting. It says, you know, um, let me read it. It says, be sober, be vigilant, for your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing you're not alone in this struggle, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren all over the world. You're not, you're not the only one going through this mess, okay? So the idea here is when it comes to the devil, you know, you need to resist, be sober, be vigilant. When we look at what the scriptures have to say when, you know, okay, how should you relate to your spouse? How should you relate to your family in Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ? How should you relate to an enemy that's out there? What's God's command? This, it's always the same, love, right? You know, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them, you know, all that kind of stuff. But with the enemy of our souls, the Lord says something very different. With the devil, God's command is to be sober and be vigilant, don't let him terrify you into leaving the straight and narrow path that Jesus calls you to. Why do I say that? Well, it says he's like a roaring lion. What's a roaring lion? Well, it's an older lion. It's actually, the word there means a toothless lion. The toothless lion cannot go get his own food anymore. And so he's dependent upon the young bucks, you know, the, the guys who do have the teeth to rend and tear and bring down, bring down the prey. So what's the toothless lion's job? Well, yeah, he loses his teeth, but as he gets older, his roar becomes more ominous. And so the roaring lion's job is to frighten the prey into running into the younger bucks so they can take it out, and then he can go gum some dinner. So he, the enemy has been rendered toothless by the Lord. He doesn't have any real bite, but his roar is loud. 
and he seeks to frighten us off the straight and narrow path that Jesus calls us to into bad decisions. You know, Beverly and I frequently urge married couples to get your cannons facing the right direction when you fight, not at each other, but at the enemy. You know, your spouse isn't the real enemy here. It's the enemy. And that's what these believers need to do. You know, they need to get their eyes off the people who are slandering them, the Roman governments who's persecuting them. And remember, this is, this is the enemy of our souls. And that's what you and I need to do when we're wronged by others. Now, why was the devil stirring up all this angst against the Christians and having them cast into prison? It's so that they would be tried, the King James says, but the word there means to tempt someone to sin. It was to tempt them to deny the Lord and to worship the emperor. He says, guys, pay attention. That's what this is all about. It's not a political thing. It's not a socioeconomical thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a spiritual thing. So stay steadfast. Now Jesus tells them, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Jesus warns them that a horrible 10-day span is on the horizon for them. The 10 days of slaughtering Christians who've been arrested and refuse to deny their Savior. That's what's coming. Now, can you imagine if the Lord gave me a letter and I had to read that to us? Say, guys, you know, the times are kind of rough right now, but worse days are coming, and, and a lot of us aren't going to make it through it. Like, we're going to give our lives for the Lord. So pay attention, because when that moment comes, make sure you recognize who the real enemy is so that you don't fall to temptation. Can you imagine what that would be like to be told that by the Lord? Could you imagine not moving to Mount Dora or somewhere else, you know? Like, whoa, that's great, Pastor Will. Well, I'll see you in about eight weeks if you're still alive. Could you imagine choosing to stay, to be a light in your city, knowing you're going to die for doing so? You know, I said last week that I, I don't think I've ever read Jesus' rebuke to Ephesus about leaving their first love without becoming convicted. And this verse is very similar for me. I don't think I can ever read it without becoming deeply convicted because I have a hard time choosing to be a light when someone's just being mean to me, when I'm not threatened at all. Someone doesn't receive it, you know. I shared the gospel with them and they didn't like it. Jesus says, some of you are going to die, many of you are going to die. This 10-day span is going to be horrible. But he says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Whew. That's heavy. That's heavy. You know, Jesus is not likely to tell us we're going to be killed for our faith, at least not in the present status we have here. But his exhortation to us is no different. Be thou faithful unto death. The phrase there, it means you must keep on becoming loyal. You must keep on becoming steadfast. What do you mean becoming? They've already had all their possessions stripped away. They're being slandered. They're being persecuted. I mean, that's the definition of loyal and faithful, right? And he says, yeah, but keep moving in that direction. What? How could you ask any more of these Christians? 
Because the Christian life is one of continually marching towards death, never away from it. That's what the Christian life is. I'm sorry if no one told you that when you came forward at the altar or raised your hand to receive Christ, but that is what the Christian life is. It's a life of continually marching towards death. Death to my way of thinking. Death to my plan for my life. Death to my natural reactions to circumstances around me. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. If any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. That's the Christian life, guys. And the Christians of Smyrna, they started on that journey the moment they repented of their sins and placed their trust in Christ. Their specific journey has simply led them to this kind of final death to self, giving their physical lives away. So even though we may not be called to die a martyr's death like them, we are called to die every day to our way of thinking, of our plan for our lives, of our to our natural reactions to what's going on around us. Are you taking up your cross daily? Are you denying yourself? Now, Jesus doesn't end with that statement, that exhortation to keep on becoming loyal even unto death. This calling that we have to keep becoming loyal even unto death, it's not a calling to a death that results in death. It's to a death that results in life. For he says, and I will give you a crown of life. He doesn't say, well, if you get it right perfectly, I'll give you a crown of life. He says, no, just keep moving forward. And this is what's waiting for you on the other side. This is what's waiting for you at the finish line. Not death, but a crown of life. This is their sure hope. You know, Jesus says, keep on moving forward because this is what's waiting for you at the finish line, a crown of life, a Stephanos is what that word crown there is. That's the victory wreath that the athletes would be given when they won a contest or particularly when they win the marathon race. They would be given that crown uh, wreath, uh, the laurel wreaths that they would put on their heads and they get to stand on a pedestal and everyone know they won the race. Now, that word Stephanos, that word for crown, uh, that's something that's used by the New Testament writers to describe our heavenly rewards. In, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul mentions, he goes, you know, anyone who competes in an athletic contest, they, they want to win. They compete to win. They don't just compete to show up. There were participation trophies, not biblical. Not biblical. All right? We're in it to win it, right? So anyone who competes, they're in it to win it. But they do it for a bunch of leaves, those leaves are going to rot. They're going to they're they're fade, you know? I, I have gotten flowers for my wife at times, and she'll save them. While they hold sentimental value, aesthetically, they're nowhere near as pleasing as when I first bought them home. They began to bloom, and you could smell. No, they're, and if you touch them, they just they start to fall apart. They do it for that. We do it for this. A Stephanos that doesn't fade away, that, that doesn't corrupt, it doesn't rot. And Revelation 4.10 describes the believers in heaven throwing their crowns before the Lord. These are real rewards that you will be overjoyed to receive when Jesus passes them out in heaven. 
Now, some crowns in Scripture are given a specific name, like here, a crown of life. Uh, we see that phrase, this crown, appear in one other place in Scripture. It's in James 1.12, where it says, Blessed are those who endure temptation. Blessed is a man that endures temptation, for when he is tempted, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So it's the same situation as Smyrna. If you look at James, the very start of the book of James, you'll see in chapter one, he's writing to persecuted people, you know? He's writing to people who are being persecuted. And he tells me, he says, guys, you're blessed if you endure that temptation to deny Christ and, you know, to go back to regular life. He said, you're blessed if you endure through that. You're going to receive a crown of life. The crown of life is for all those who love Jesus more than their own lives, more than anything else. So what is the crown? What does it look like? Is it gold or purple or blue? I don't know. Does it, like, cook for you? I don't know. But I know in both the mentions, literally it says the crown of life. So not just a crown that symbolizes life, but it's like a specific crown. It's, it's, the language describes a unique reward. So what makes it different from other crowns you might receive? Again, I don't know. I don't know what's the difference between the crown of glory and the crown of life. I don't know. I just know I want one. I want a crown of life. And you should too. Because that day, when Jesus gives that to you, it will be way more rewarding than finding a new Pokemon at a restaurant. Everything you and I collect here will fade away. But Jesus' rewards last forever. Now, before we move into this last verse, I know I'm running out of time, Jesus' promise, I do think it's important to make note that Jesus has no critique for this church, no rebuke, just a promise of reward. I don't want to go through persecution, okay? I pray for us to have freedoms in our country and to be able to, you know, live a godly life and do that freely without harassment. But I do want to be someone who grows in faithfulness to die to self, because when I'm doing that, when I'm denying myself, taking up my cross daily and following Jesus, I can't go wrong. I may fail. I might sin, but my attitude will be in the right place. And that, Jesus won't critique. You know, John writes in 1 John chapter uh, 2, he says, my little children, everything I'm writing to you is so you don't sin. You know, I'm, I, that's our goal, right? But if we sin, you sin. We have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins, not just ours, but for the whole world. That's great news. Like, every time you, you blow it, Jesus isn't like, well, you gotta get born again, again, again. You know, we, we, we've been washed, we've been cleansed. You know, the Lord's not angry at us when we blow it, you know, when we fail. But heart attitudes are where we have problems, you know, Mindsets is where we have problems. When we're stubborn, we're rebellious, when the Lord says, I want you to do this, and, and we blow it, but we don't come to him and go, Lord, I know you want me to do this, but it's just, you know, I can't. Well, now we've got a problem because the Lord says you can do all things through me, right? Now I've got a mindset issue. I've got a stubborn heart. So if I've got a mindset of a Smyrna Christian that whatever comes my way, Lord, I want to love you more than anything else. I want to die to myself every day. Well, then you can't go wrong. 
So in that sense, I want to be a Smyrna kind of Christian. Don't you? Lastly, he says here, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So this is not just for the church at Smyrna. This is for Calvary Chapel Orlando too. And what does he say? He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. The word here overcomes, we saw, it's the victorious one. And from 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we learn that the victorious one is someone who's trusted Christ as their Savior and they are presently following him. Listen, if you're totally rebelling against the Lord right now or if you're not, you're not born again this morning, this promise is not for you. But if you trusted Christ as your Savior, you're following him right now, this is for you. It says... They shall not be hurt of the second death. What's the second death? Revelation 20 tells us the lake of fire. Someone said it this way If you're born twice, you die once. But if you're only born once, you die twice. So, you know, we're all physically born. So, have you been born again? Are you an overcomer? Well, if you are, you only and this is just if the Lord doesn't rapture us, but you only die once. I'm going for the no-death deal, but, you know, that's what I'm praying for. But either way, still, what if that happens? What if? What if persecution came to our country? What if they threatened our lives? What if they took our lives? Well, you only have to do it once, and then you're with the Lord forever. The second death can't touch you. Cannot touch you. Jesus doesn't promise they'll escape death, pain, and mistreatment here. But whatever they might experience here that's painful isn't eternal. There is life after death, and they will not be harmed by the second death. What an awesome promise for believers. And no matter what happens to me here, I never need fear what will happen to me forever. Amen? Amen. Well, as the worship team comes up, I want to close with one last thought. While the lessons of, us, of Smyrna, they apply to us. I mean, we are not a Smyrna type of church. You know, we are not living in a Smyrna type environment here in the States. We have great freedoms. We have great resources, okay? But because of that, I do think it's easy to forget that there are Smyrna type churches in the world today. There are Smyrna type Christians in the world today in many other places. In Hebrews 13.3 the writer there tells these believers, remember them that are in bonds as if you are bound with them. And remember them which suffer adversity as being yourselves in the body. You're a part of the body of Christ. So you're a part of the suffering church even if your church isn't suffering. So remember those who are being persecuted. Remember those who are being killed for their faith. Remember those who are being jailed for their faith. Don't forget about them. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been ostracized, who are being persecuted, okay? So he's not writing to people like us who, it's pretty, pretty good. We're very free. We're very blessed. He's writing to people who are being persecuted. So if he could write this command to people who are being persecuted to take their eyes off their own troubles and pray for those who had worse troubles, how much more should we do that who have so much? So 
let's apply the lessons of Smyrna personally that we've talked about today. But let's be obedient to this command. And here's my challenge to you as we close. Here's my challenge to you, Calvary Chapel, Orlando. When you're tempted to complain or become frustrated with what's going on around you, how about instead of going to social media, how about we choose to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters instead? Will you take that challenge? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord Jesus, we don't want to be those who murmur and complain in our hearts or publicly. Lord, we want to be those who, as the old hymn goes, count our blessings, name them one by one. But Lord, we also want to be those who remember our persecuted brothers and sisters. And so we pray, Lord, for those in the Middle East, those in Southeast Asia, those in Africa, Lord, those on the West Coast of our own nation. We pray for those who are being treated differently because of their faith. And we ask, in in obedience to your word, we pray that you would allow them, that the governing officials in these places would stop persecuting them and they would allow them to live a peaceable life, to worship you, Lord, to freely follow you. We're so grateful for the freedoms we have here locally, Lord. We thank you for the blessings you've given to us, but we remember those who don't experience them right now and ask that you be gracious to them and rescue them. And Lord, for ourselves, we commit this morning to be Smyrna-type believers in the sense that we will deny ourselves. We choose, Lord, to take up our cross daily and follow you of marching toward death, knowing it's a death that leads to life with you forever, the crown of life waiting for those who love you more than anything else, even our own lives. We make that commitment to you afresh this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.